So a few, a few announcements before we begin the graduation process. And of course tomorrow we have our intensive. The intensive is dedicated to Shaktipat and it's really the culmination of our winter retreat. There is still time to book in and join us online if you haven't booked in already. If you've never been to an intensive program, really it touches the heart of this tradition. It's the program in which Swamiji gives Shaktipat, which is an energetic transfer from him to you. And rest assured, it works via the internet. The Shakti or the spiritual energy is very clever and very strong. So I, um, I consider the intensive to really be the start of my own spiritual journey. It helped me to conquer my, my fear of looking inside. It helped build some essential part of me and it really strengthened and revealed my inner world. So if you haven't done one before, sign up. You won't regret it. And if you have done one before or even done many before, come again because every Shaktipat experience takes you deeper into your practice. It um, refreshes and reorients you. And if you are coming tomorrow and you haven't already submitted a question, um, you can do that by emailing online at theashram.com.au as soon as possible or filling out a paper in the basket at reception and obviously um, Guruji will be answering those questions tomorrow. Now, um, one more announcement. We are obviously in a minute going to be graduating our new Shiva process trainees and if you're feeling FOMO, um, don't because we do ongoing Shiva process training which is available um, online or in person and if you're stuck at home, which many people are these days, this is a great course to do online and is just as powerful online as it is in person and you can find out more details on our website. Oh, very good, very good. What a wonderful, festive and extraordinary event. I always love the night before an intensive. <clears throat> and I'm very happy to see uh, the Shiva process work spreading because human language is, is deeply tied to thought and feeling. Language is behind everything in our culture and everything in our lives, in our relationships and even in our inner world, the thought process that goes within. It's crucial uh, to human life, and yet we human beings use language so badly, so inexpertly, and so unconsciously. And then to begin to understand it, tie, to tie language to feeling and thought and see how it works and how it works in relationship to the inner self and to the Shakti, and how certain kinds of uh, thought forms enhance our energy and uplift us and other kinds of thinking process depletes our energy, makes us miserable. This is very important and this can only be the, uh, where humanity is heading. Humanity must learn uh, to deal with this tremendous city of power of language and thought. And it's very crucial. So Shiva process 
is uh, several centuries ahead of its time, and people who learn it become expert in their own inner field, and it transforms life. Uh, and if everybody did cheaper process, uh, we won't have war. Well, we would have war, but it would be conscious war. <laughs> I don't know. It would be much better if everyone did cheaper process. That's what I know. So I'd like to uh, begin by, um, uh, as I always do, by remembering uh, my guru, Swami Muktananda, uh, and uh, repeating what he said every night uh, in every one of his programs in Hindi. Sabko barisanmane kesat premse hardik swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he'd say that every night, again and again. And then he would explain that that was his actual worship, to welcome another person. He didn't believe in worshiping stone images and dry scriptures. He believed that human beings were the living temples of God. And to worship them, to open to them, to love them, uh, was the key to spirituality. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you all. <clears throat> and of course, uh, there can only be one topic the night before an intensive, because Baba, many years ago, told me uh, in no uncertain terms, as I've said, uh, to run intensives. And the intensive format is, was his method of conveying his shakti. This is his greatest gift to humanity and his highest service. Uh, was to convey Shakti, to awaken people, uh, to awaken the Kundalini energy, the inner energy, uh, through the process of Shaktipat. And so the intensive is uh, the format which he developed to do exactly that. Uh, so, of course, tonight will be about Baba. And also, I'll tell you a few things about what happened during the, the week as... Uh, Lila said we were doing a lot about uh, Kashmir Shaivism, very close to my heart. We've got a few photographs of Baba that we uh, retrieved from uh, an old Indian magazine that uh, we probably haven't seen before from Siddhavani. So let's look at it. How many do we have? Six. Six of them? Let's take a look. The, the resolution may not be good, but the feeling will be great. Next. This is Baba uh, around the late 60s, early 70s when I met him. Definitely in India. Next. God, he looks so much older. He has no teeth. <laughs> yeah, he, he uh, that's right. I always liked his uh, pictures without teeth. It's a bit wilder in India, isn't it? Less quaffed. Okay, next. That's in the ashram. And one more, is there? That's how he looked when I met him. He's better looking than that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> no. Uh, 
Okay, so, wonderful, thank you. So as I said, we had a, a great retreat. We had talks by Devi Ma and Swamis and others. And um, uh, last night we had great uh, Shiva Yagna. And again, tomorrow uh, uh, is the intensive. And as I said, I was talking about Kashmir Shaivism, which is one of my favorite topics. And I thought I'd share two of the items, a couple of the items from the, from the retreat. One is a note from the tea shop, which said that Spanda, Spanda is the, uh, often called, thought of as the vibration of the divine, the Spanda principle. It's not different from the Shakti. Spanda is the experiential or first-hand evidence of the existence of God. <clears throat> so mostly when we, we grow up, God is uh, considered very remote. But the great mystics of all religions had a one-to-one, -one highly personal and very real relationship with God. And to experience the spanda tattva, the spanda principle, the, the experience of the shakti is to be in an experiential one-to-one -one relationship with the divine. Another one, this is the one I emphasized during the retreat from the Shiva Sutras. Shura tattva sandhanadva pashu shaktihi. Um, by the contemplation of the pure principle of supreme reality, the yogi is freed from bondage. By the contemplation of the pure principle. And I was emphasizing that we should think about this every day. You don't have to say that sutra. Um, but you should think about contemplating the pure principle. What is that pure principle? It is that which is beyond the mundane. It is the divine principle. It is the shakti. It is the cosmic light. It's, it is pure consciousness. And we can tune ourselves to that higher principle, transcends the mundane reality. It lifts us out of the mundane reality. It's a connection with the infinite, with the eternal. So by contemplating that principle, in whatever way makes sense to you, we are lifted out of our suffering and out of our limitations. One way to contemplate that principle is by repeating the mantra. Another is to be thinking about the form of God that you relate to. It can be uh, Jesus, it can be Shiva, it can be Krishna, and oh, we should also not forget Ram, who's in the chant, Lord Ram, uh, or it could be the guru, or Ganesh, or Hanuman, or, or uh, in whatever way we think, or it can be the uh, absolute consciousness, the formless. There are many ways to contemplate, but we should contemplate, stretch your mind. Instead of going and rehashing over and over and over again, uh, what's for dinner, and how much money is this, and I wish I had that, and I don't have this, and what's on television. That's all very exciting, all of that stuff. 
but also think of something beyond that. Go beyond that, and when you're there, go beyond that. And then keep going beyond until you can't go beyond anymore. And then you'll be contemplating the pure, uh, the pure tatwa, the pure experience. <clears throat> and finally, um, a, a summary of the difference between Vedanta and Shaivism. Uh, Shankar's uh, Advaita Vedanta used to say that the many obscure the one, that, that the one is pure consciousness, the one is divinity, the one stuff of the universe. And Shankara used to say that the many obscure the one. So you have to get rid of the many because they hide the one, the one being divinity. But Kashmir Shaivism says the many express the one. They both agree that the one is the goal, but this is the approach of Shaivism. Instead of seeing this manifest universe as a problem, it sees it as an expression of God, a play of God. We can see it's a much more life-affirming. However, uh, we shouldn't denigrate uh, the Vedantic point of view, because that comes in, in handy, believe me, from time to time. <clears throat> so, so tonight I want to do some uh, question answers with Baba in honor of the intensive. And uh, first one, these will be from, from my, uh, what's happening? Nothing. Everything all right? Yeah, perfect. Okay. Okay, so um, <clears throat> these are from, from my time with Baba in Ganeshpuri in India in the early 1970s. And uh, I spent three years there uh, in the ashram doing sadhana, spiritual practices. And then the highlight of the week was always going into Baba's room uh, for the question-answer sessions. So whatever questions we had, and we asked questions about every aspect of life, from diet to a god, everything. Uh, and um, uh, those were the great moments. We all used to squeeze into his, his room because there weren't many people in those days. Later it got bigger and we moved the uh, question-answers outside into the courtyard. But this is from 14 January 1972, and the date rang a bell because my parents visited the ashram in January of 1972. And because the question was about how to live in the ashram, I started wondering, were my parents there for this question? And I looked it up in the book, and sure enough, in fact, my father asked a question of Baba in the same session. So my parents were sitting there uh, when this question was asked, and that gives it a whole new meaning for me, maybe not for you, but for me, uh, about what was going on here. <clears throat> they had come out with uh, another set of parents. Uh, my friend Ram's then wife, Janaki's parents came out, and the four of them came out. Uh, uh, they had, none of them had any spiritual background or anything like that. My parents took to it like ducks to water. 
Janaki's parents, not so much. <clears throat> but they were all sitting there in Baba's room when this went on. So you can see what was going on here. <clears throat> Shama asked, it said that one should live at the ashram of a siddha with vigilance. What exactly is the nature of this vigilance? <clears throat> so, Baba says, you should follow the rules of the ashram most faithfully. <clears throat> there everything happens punctually. There are some women from Delhi who seem to have made a rule to come to the Gita five minutes late. This doesn't show vigilance. That's a crime. <laughs> a pedantic point, you know, I thought that the Guru Gita, no. That was the month that they changed from the, day, uh, from the Bhagavad Gita to the Guru Gita. So that was still the Bhagavad Gita that he's just referring to. We, we chanted that in the mornings. Um, <clears throat> this does not indicate respect for the ways of the abode of a siddha. It only shows <clears throat> that one is treating the ashram like one's own kitchen, lighting a fire whenever one likes. One should be punctual for every little thing which happens in the ashram. You should enter the meditation room very softly so that you do not disturb the meditation of others by your shuffling feet and rustling clothes. <clears throat> when you sit to meditate, you should not spoil the cushion on which you're sitting. I have to make a comment about that. So I don't know if this is, is you know, like in educating my parents about, uh, or Baba just had some other thing. You'll see in a minute, he's, he's uh, ticked off at somebody who sat on the pillow instead of using it as a backrest. Uh, but I have, a, I have a story. I used to go down to the, um, the cave, uh, which is the, 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 the room was, if you've been to Ganeshpuri, Baba's Samadhi Shrine used to be the meditation veranda. Now, when you sit around Baba's shrine, you're sitting just where we sat to meditate. Uh, but it was, it was different. It wasn't marble then. It was, and there were cushions. It was underground. No, underground was the cave. It wasn't underground. Oh, yeah, underground was the cave. The cave was underground. Then you could go down another flight of stairs uh, to a, a, a dark, very quiet cave to meditate. And I often went down there to meditate. And I used to go meditate there. And then they would have, uh, uh, you'd be meditating, and suddenly the lights would go on and there'd be a, 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 a tour group come through. <laughs> and uh, they'd be showing uh, the tour groups around, and they'd talk in a very loud voice, and they'd point out all the Westerners over here, and they'd all be going like this. And I just was irate. I was irate. And I, uh, I complained uh, to Amma about that. And uh, for, for a couple of weeks, it stopped, and then it started again, and I gave up. <laughs> And I just thought that's part of a test of meditation. So Baba talks about being quiet in the meditation room. <clears throat> he says, every morning I go for inspection with my flashlight. And I see the 
the quality of the meditation of a particular seeker and in what matter he's seating, he's sitting. This is actually true. We would sit there in the veranda and Baba, Baba's room uh, had a doorway to the veranda. Um, and he could just walk out and be in the veranda and he'd come out with his little torch and he'd look around. And you know, those are great darshans, you know, you'd sit there and like that. And, and um, so he'd come and look. He said, um, you should be aware that the cushions are provided for backrests. <clears throat> and they should be used for backrests. They shouldn't be used to sit on. <clears throat> now, now that you're here for a short time, wouldn't it be much better if you, if you observed all the rules of the ashram? Otherwise, you'll go back as blank as you came here. <laughs> Wouldn't have been better if you'd never come. <laughs> I don't, that's too harsh for my parents. He's not talking about Johnny. No, no, no. I don't think so, because he's so gracious to the parents. You should come to the ashram with the purpose of meditating and chanting, or helping the ashramites keep the ashram clean and pure, uh, by learning to get up early, and not for a frivolous end. You should live in the ashram very vigilantly. As far as possible, you should be truthful, silent, and pure, and entertain good thoughts. The scriptures say that if in the course of your ordinary life in the town or a city, you happen to commit certain wrongs, certain bad deeds, then you can go to a holy place uh, to expiate them. What's going to happen to you if you persist with the same deeds in a holy place also? Bobby used to call that a thunderbolt sin. If you don't, he's really scary. <clears throat> if you happen to commit bad deeds in a holy place uh, and you go to the ashram, to, to, where you go to, to the ashram to get rid of the evil consequences, but if you persist in the same kind of deeds even in the ashram, who can possibly save you? Therefore, while you're in the ashram, as far as possible, follow the ashram ways. So I agree, there's uh, not for my parents. But they were listening, <laughs> they were there. Whatever there is in the ashram, all, although this could be for them, all the things that you see, uh, I do not look on as my personal possessions, as my personal wealth. To me, they're gifts of love. Every little thing is the heart of a devotee who has offered it to me. And I honor it as such. And I treat it with great love. Take, for instance, this clock. <laughs> I didn't go to the market to buy it. It's been offered by a French devotee. I do not look upon it as a mere clock. But I've kept it here with great love. To me, it's nothing but pure love, religion in its highest form. <clears throat> we should not look upon the different items of furniture and other articles in the ashram the way we'd look on similar things in a guest house. We must be fully aware of, <clears throat> of, of the time that these things used in donating them 
the devotees gave them out of pure love, and they are embodiments of Dharma itself. We should be very careful that our speech does not disturb or upset others. Otherwise, the ashram would prove to be our worst enemy. There are many people who raise this question. How is it that even uh, after paying for, staying for such a long period of time that a person degenerates? Well, my answer is that you have to stay in an ashram and you have to follow the discipline. If you don't do that, uh, then you're bound to degenerate. <laughs> even if somebody presents a piece of chocolate to me, I take care that it's added to the fruit salad. So Bobby used to, uh, I think I mentioned this recently, didn't I? That, mm -hmm. that, uh, all the, that the Baba made this strange fruit salad called Shri, which had fruit salad and milk and chocolate. And yogurt. And yogurt. And sugar. And lots of sugar. <laughs> and it was called Shri, and it was, uh, it was wonderful stuff. And um, all, all the chocolate went into it. <laughs> and it would be served for, uh, for dessert sometimes. <clears throat> because I value it as dharma, and I do not like it at all if the cook happens to help himself to a part of it while making the fruit salad. <clears throat> then the fruit salad... All right. You should realize that whatever you may eat, however delicious it must be, will finally be turned into shit. <laughs> so why should you violate the principles of dharma, the rules of the ashram, just for the palate? Because it all ends up that way anyway. <clears throat> Once my guru, for certain reasons, asked me to stop eating mangoes. I stopped eating mangoes and for 12 years did not refer to the subject. I didn't go to him and ask him again and again whether I could begin to eat mangoes. It so happened that I practiced my sadhana under a mango tree. He went to the, the town of Suki near Yola, and he had a little hut, and there was a mango tree outside. And I had all the finest experiences under that mango tree. <clears throat> you see here also, and he never, he never ate a mango. He sat under it, but he never ate. And here also I've planted so many different varieties of mangoes, and these trees are heavily laden with fruit. You should look upon all the things in the ashram as embodiments of dharma, as purity in its purest form, and use them accordingly. Every little thing, every little object is a living body of dharma. Every morning and every evening you find girls sweeping the paths and and uh, the ashram floors most diligently. And some foolish character was uh, coming by and blowing his nose and spitting, that would send me into a rage immediately because I cannot tolerate a person that could be so stupid that he would make the place filthy and show no respect for the work the seekers are doing out of pure love. So if you were to live in the ashram with such awareness, then you'd be justifying your stay in the ashram. And your attitude would, but if your attitude to the ashram was just to stay here, it won't yield any results. So that's Baba. I should have given a, a, a um, trigger alert, Baba, at his, uh, at his maybe, finest. Maybe Bhagwan foresaw his diabetes. 
Uh, Baba what? No, Baba maybe Bhagwan foresaw his diabetes. Oh, about the about the mangoes. Uh, mango. Well, possible. Possible. He didn't tell him not to eat chocolate, though. <laughs> but he didn't know he ate chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do uh, one more on uh, meditation. And this one is from Oliver, uh, who actually is Olivier. He was uh, a French seeker, very colorful fellow. He says, let me get some light on this. Oliver says, I've got problems with my meditation. Some people say you should use your mantra. Other people say you should empty your mind of all thoughts. Please tell me the right way to meditate. And uh, Swami Turinanda gave a talk on Patanjali the other day, so this will be relevant. <clears throat> Baba says, people now say whatever comes to their mind without weighing their words. <clears throat> If the advice comes from one who actually meditates, who has attained a certain state through meditation, then the advice has some value. But if it comes from someone who's only read books, has only, is only talking from hearsay, then the advice has no value. There's also a third category of extremely clever persons in this country who have neither read uh, or heard anything with it from any authority, nor have they done any practice, but they're quite liberal in giving out their advice. They are stupid fools, <laughs> and you should keep away from them. I always see Bob's got some, some, uh, something in mind, always. There are also books written by professionals, <clears throat> people who write for name and money and status, uh, can a seeker be redeemed by reading their writings? The other day a professor came here who wanted to write his thesis for a PhD on the subject of Kundalini Yoga, but didn't have time to meditate even for one hour. This is Baba on the Academy, and I was just having made my own critique of the Academy and fled it, actually, for this very reason that... Uh, it was all uh, theory and no experience. I wanted real experience. Uh, so this is Bob on it. <clears throat> he says, to write his thesis, he's going from one saint to another, getting ideas from them. Whatever he may write in his thesis, uh, can an aspirant be helped by such writing? I love when Baba said that because uh, it, it blew my mind. I'll tell you in a minute. He says, the writer himself uh, is sinking, so how can readers swim to the other shore? Baba, like, uh, naively thinks that if a book is written on a spiritual topic, it should be done to help others. But an academic book is not written with that design at all. 
And it's like outside of Baba's sphere of why you would write a, an, a book about sadhana, about meditation, about kundalini, not to help others, not to be that, but just some kind of intellectual survey of it. So I, it was very interesting to me to see his, his view of that. You don't read a, an academic book on kundalini for spiritual nourishment. You read it for information, perhaps, or whatever, but not for that. Two years ago, a professor from France came here. He wanted to write his PhD on nirvikalpa samadhi. <clears throat> I said, first tell me what you know about savikalpa samadhi. So nirvikalpa samadhi is uh, the, the samadhi of uh, complete oneness and of the formless, you could say. Savikalpa is samadhi which has complete stillness, but it's of the form. It's like when you meditate on Krishna and you get absorbed in Krishna, that can be savakalpa samadhi, but nirvakalpa is you go beyond the form into the formless, formless consciousness. So there are two kinds of samadhi that Patanjali discovered. He calls it savitaka, nirvitaka samadhi. Um, <coughs> but Baba says, he didn't even know about Savikalpa Samadhi, so how could he know about Nirvikalpa Samadhi? <clears throat> he said, I don't know what Savikalpa Samadhi is. Please tell me. Baba says, not to know Savikalpa and to write on Nirvikalpa for a PhD. What a mockery. <laughs> the, examiner, <laughs> the examiners also know nothing about Savikalpa or Nirvikalpa Samadhi. Then they have no real per personal, when they have no real personal experience, they're just impressed by fine phrases that the student is, has used, and then they award the PhD. If you happen to read such a book written by such a person, how can that help you? <laughs> <clears throat> you should ask those who say, uh, those who say to empty the mind of all thoughts. Can you do that? Because, of course, Patanjali says, empty the mind of all thoughts. <clears throat> Can you sweep the mind with, with a broom? I have full control over this room. I can turn all of you out at any time and make the room completely empty. <laughs> Patanjali said, get rid of everyone, we can do it. But, you, but can you do the same with the mind? Can you order all your thoughts to leave your mind and make it empty? So what's the point of saying empty your mind? How are you going to empty it? It's true that the definition of meditation uh, given in the scriptures is absolutely correct and says the state of meditation is a state in which the mind is completely free of thoughts. But to achieve the thought-free state, you have to subject the mind to one particular thought for a very long time. So this is Baba's point. It's, it's, Patanjali may say that, but to, to empty the mind of thoughts is no joke. It takes long practice, and the, uh, the recommendation is to focus on one thought, on one pure thought, and that can help you get to it. He says, only then will the mind become free of all thoughts. It's extremely difficult to keep the mind empty for any length of time. However, you can keep it engaged with only 
one thought for a considerable length of time through mantra japa, the repetition of the mantra. All the great saints of our country, such as Tulsidas, Mirabai, and Tukaram, whose words are considered to be as true as mantras, <clears throat> meditated on one object. Only that way could they achieve the thoughtless state. Take the case of Tukaram Maharaj. To meditating on form, he attained the formless. <clears throat> but on the contrary, he who tries to meditate on the formless becomes obsessed with the form. Therefore, it is quite proper to use the mantra. And Baba, it's why Baba always told people, use the mantra. Use the mantra, it's a great method. If you really wish to learn yoga, you should use Patanjali as the authority. He's saving Patanjali now. He's getting roughed up. There's no higher authority on the subject of meditation than Patanjali. Whatever claims any teacher may make for himself, uh, Patanjali was not a stage lecturer. He had practiced yoga himself. <clears throat> then he came to certain conclusions and wrote them down. Patanjali's authority is supreme in yoga as that of Narada in Bhakti or Vyas in the field of knowledge. Nobody coming after these three can change or modify their conditions, uh, their conclusions that they arrived at. It is Patanjali who says that meditating implies the state in which the mind becomes completely free of thoughts but it's extremely difficult to achieve such a state. Therefore, engage your mind with one particular thought. <clears throat> and for, to do that, you should repeat the mantra. Keep on repeating the mantra continuously, keeping yourself fully aware of the meaning. In fact, Patanjali says that. You understand the meaning, the, uh, the practice om, which is the symbol of God, the, the, the uh, sound form of God, with knowing the meaning of it and practice continually for a long time. Baba says that. That will make you one point that the thought-free state is a very high state as long as the mind does not become free of all objects. <clears throat> you have to find the next page. You have to rely on the mantra. Anyone thoroughly proficient in this field will tell you what I'm telling you. Patanjali says you should repeat the mantra for a prolonged period of time, continually, in an unbroken stream with full earnestness. Actually, the sutra like that, to say with, with, uh, uh, with reverent devotion for a long period. It is only then you can achieve the thought-free state. It is only when you get the mind to stick to one object that will be able to remain free from all objects. Continue to repeat your mantra, and if in the course of the japa the mind becomes still for a while, that's a very good state. And he's referring to the state of tundra. If you, if you say the mantra, occasionally you slip into a state of complete absorption and peace, a kind of samadhi state. <clears throat> so... He's saying uh, that 
it's very difficult to uh, still the mind. After you've meditated for a number of years and you understand the psychology of meditation, you understand the, the movements of the mind and how thought and feeling go together and how thought works where it arises from and so on, then you can, using your own inner will, you can still the mind completely. But you can't do that right from the get-go. It's much better to use a mantra or contemplate one form and then the mind will become still. When the mind becomes still, there's great power becomes available, great light and great wisdom and great love. And when we think all kinds of thoughts, the mind goes in all kinds of directions, uh, we deplete ourselves, it vitiates our power. We give ourselves, we, we become weaker. We, just as when you worry too much, the whole body becomes weak, you become prey to disease. This is demonstration of how negative thought forms lead to loss of energy and so on. So meditation is about strengthening the mind through focus and focusing on the inner self. <clears throat> so let's do it. <clears throat> we'll meditate for 10 minutes. And turn within. And sit there. Sit there and regard your inner world. Turn from outside in. One of the sutras we looked at uh, was how the mind is actually consciousness turned externally. And then when you take that same mind and turn it inward towards the self, it rises up to the state of pure consciousness. And what it means by that, it rises up, means suddenly there's joy, suddenly there's peace, suddenly there's wisdom, suddenly there's contentment. And through the process of meditation, instilling the mind gradually, bit by bit, and learn how to do that, great power becomes ours, great love, great joy, and great contentment. So let's meditate now for 10 minutes and let's follow Baba's prescription and use the mantra. The mantra of our tradition is Om Namah Shivaya. Om Namah Shivaya. Which means I bow to the self, I honor Supreme Consciousness. You can repeat that to yourself at whatever rate of speed seems comfortable and let the other thoughts drift away, keep coming back to that. And once again, with great love and respect, I welcome you all with all my heart and I look forward to seeing you at the intensive tomorrow. Sakyunath Maharaj Kijay. Let's meditate for 10 minutes. <clears throat> 